1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word to us. This, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have, shipwreck, have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First Timothy is giving guidance and direction to pastors and churches. So, of course, every book of the Bible is relevant to both pastors and churches. But 1 Timothy is especially so. Because Paul is directing this letter to a young pastor who he has urged to remain in Ephesus so that he will continue to faithfully teach God's word to the people there. And in this passage today, these are Paul's concluding opening remarks. Last week we talked about the autobiographical section where Paul kind of gave us a little bit of his history about how he came to faith in Christ. But 18 through 20 kind of tie into the first part of the chapter. But this specific, these three verses deal with spiritual warfare. Because spiritual warfare is a part of every follower of Jesus' life, then we need to properly understand its role. And so Paul teaches Timothy about that here in this passage. So three truths that I want to give you this morning about this idea of spiritual warfare. Paul doesn't call it spiritual warfare here. He simply calls it warfare. But we know that's what he's talking about. The first truth is this. The war is real. Number two. The war is personal. And then number three, the war is for the soul. So the war is real, the war is personal, and the war is for the soul. Number one, the war is real. Now Paul in verse 18 refers back to the charge that he actually gave to Timothy earlier in the chapter in verse 5. So look back up just a few verses. Here was the charge. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we unpacked a few weeks ago what Paul meant by that. But this is the charge that Paul is entrusting to Timothy, whom he calls a child. Of course, this is not a reference to Timothy being a biological child offspring of Paul, but rather a spiritual child. Paul has invested so much in Timothy's life that he views him as a child. Of course, a brother in Christ, but also his spiritual child. Which causes me to pause and ask us this question. Do you have in your life any spiritual children any people that you have invested in poured into loved so much that you would consider them 
to be your spiritual children, and they might even consider you to be their spiritual mother or spiritual father. Who have you invested your time and your energy with to the point that you would have people like this in your life? Let that, just as we begin today, be on the forefront of your mind. We are not called to gather on Sunday and just sit and soak. We are called to faithfully encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Read God's word together. Disciple one another. There is nothing more faithful, obedient, biblical, and rewarding than investing in other Christians. Than pouring into other believers. So we want to be a church where mature Christians are pouring into new Christians. Where older brothers and sisters in the faith are pouring into younger brothers and sisters in the faith. We want people of various ages, various backgrounds, various demographics, all gathering together in this place because we all have something to learn from one another. I need my older brothers and sisters in Christ to pour into me. One of the beauties of growing up in the church that I did was the multi-generational aspect of my church and my parents always exposing me to people of various ages and various demographics within the church so that I could see throughout the course of growing up what it looked like for a 80-year-old man to faithfully follow Christ. What it looked like for a 45-year-old man to faithfully follow Christ. What it looked like for a 28-year-old man with small children to faithfully follow Christ. So I have all of these men and women that I can just spit out to you right now that made a spiritual investment in my life, that cared for me, that raised me up in the faith. People that I would consider to be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in my life. Some have already gone to be with the Lord. Others still remain at the church that I grew up at when I go home and worship with my parents. These were youth and children, Sunday school teachers, deacons, and just faithful church members that God used to imprint on my heart the importance of the whole body of Christ mattering and being important. So, I just want to stop at the very beginning of this sermon and pray that God would give us, those of you that are faithfully following Christ, the opportunity to be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers to those in Christ. So let's pray. God, we ask that you would lay it on our hearts. If we don't already have people that we are pouring into and investing into, would you give us the name of someone in this congregation who we could get to know better. Maybe grab lunch, grab coffee, open up God's word together, pray together, encourage one another. God, would you make us a church that is intentional? A culture of discipleship is what we desire. Thank you for the model that you have given in this passage for Paul pouring into Timothy. And may we do the same in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. That is not the end of the sermon. Paul, in this passage, he references some prophecies that he had previously learned of Timothy, which gave him confidence that Timothy could, in fact, lead the church in Ephesus the way that it needed to be led. We're not giving 
We're not given a whole lot of information as to what these prophecies were. But they gave Paul confidence that Timothy could do what it is that God had called him to do. And these prophecies that Timothy had received urged him to wage warfare. The good warfare. In other words, to be ready to deal with spiritual battles in your life. Now this is not talking about WWE warfare or MMA warfare, but spiritual, theological in nature. Timothy, Paul, you, me, we are in a battle, brothers and sisters. A battle of spiritual warfare. And this takes us back to when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he discusses spiritual warfare in a much more lengthy section in Ephesians 6. Here's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's ironic that Paul writes that to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6. And it is now Timothy who is residing as one of the leaders in the church at Ephesus. So this topic of spiritual warfare seems to come up a lot related to the church at Ephesus. And this spiritual battle, this really this war that we're in, this is not myth. This is not theory or fantasy. It is real. Satan wants your soul. He is zealous for you to give in to the flesh and give in to the cares of this world. He wants you to spend your time, as we prayed earlier, on all of the pursuits that this world has to offer. In fact, the world might consider many of these pursuits to be admirable and worth your time. But they ultimately do nothing for the sake of the gospel or for the sake of your spiritual growth. Now what I'm not saying is that the only way to avoid this type of life is to quit your job and to go be a monk in the desert. That's the only life that counts for faith in Christ. That's not what we're teaching. But just know that one of the ways that Satan works in the lives of believers, particularly in America is distractions. The good things of life that God has actually given us that turn from being created things meant for our enjoyment to ultimate things meant for our worship. Those are called idols. Idolatry is anything that God created that we worship more than the Creator Himself. And Nick so beautifully gave examples of so many of the idols of our own hearts that we deal with. So let me just urge you to consider the idols in your own heart and how you manage your time. Ashley and I had the opportunity this week to, and some of our other pastors to go up to Indianapolis for the National Conference of the Gospel Coalition. And I want to thank you for your generosity, which allows us as pastors to go and do things like that. We are very appreciative of that. 
And Ashley and I had the opportunity to go to a, a breakfast meeting one morning that was addressing the next generation of kids and teenagers. And the reason I went to this breakfast is because it was free. And uh, when I go to these conferences, I'm always sniffing out the free events because they normally come with meals. So it's not that I don't care about the next generation, I do, but I also care about a free meal. And so I went to a free lunch one day, free breakfast the next. I'm all about free, as you know. So this particular panel discussion dealt with the next generation. How are we going to reach Gen Z and whatever the next generation will be called? And one of the panelists has done a lot of research on uh, the use of social media within teenage girls and the use of video games within teenage boys. So just listen to some of these statistics. In 1999, which is when I was 14 years old, boys played video games on average 34 minutes a day. Today, 97% of boys play for two hours and 27 minutes. Now, I played lots of video games. I'm, I'm not opposed to video games. In fact, I'm pretty sure I played more than 34 minutes a day. But nevertheless, guys, generally speaking, young men are spending large amounts of time on a screen playing video games. What about teenage girls and their use of social media? It was even more alarming. In response to a question from the audience, the lady on the panel point blank said this, social media is killing our young girls. Killing them, she said. And this isn't just to pick on teenagers. We're, we're guilty as adults of this as well. We are more consumed with work uh, than ever before. Getting our children from one activity to the next because we actually think they're going to be the next Tom Brady or Serena Williams when they are not. And I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but your children, there's about a point zero 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 zero. Keep going, 1% chance that they will be an NFL player or a Major League Baseball player. So, we also spend our time on things like heading to the beach or heading to the lake, which I think are great things to do. But oftentimes they become the priority and the church and spiritual development gets put on the back burner. Satan not only works through the big things that we always talk about, like pornography and drugs and crime and other big sins that we're very quick to talk about. But he also works through the everyday good activities of life that God has given us to enjoy. He wants to just simply distract you from spending time in the presence of the Lord or gathering with Christ's church. So just know this morning, this war that we are fighting is real. And the antidote to losing this war is to hold on to the faith and have a good conscience, as Paul tells Timothy in verse 18, which we know stems ultimately from love, which we talked about in verse 5. So what we pray every single Sunday is we want to pray for the gospel to take root in our lives and that we have a conscience that is sensitive to sin. And we will learn later on in this letter about what it means to have a seared conscience. And a seared conscience is a conscience that is desensitized 
to sin in our own lives. So we don't want to have those types of hearts. We don't want to be calloused and indifferent towards sin. God, make us a people who would have good consciences, who would hold on to the faith. This is the basic message that Paul gives Timothy here in this passage. So not only is the war personal, excuse me, not only is it real, but number two, it's personal. It has a name. In the context of this letter, we learn the names of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And many commentators and scholars actually believe that these men might have even been elders in the church at Ephesus. And we're not given the specific reason as to why they abandoned their faith. But I love the image that Paul gives here. The image is that of what he calls shipwrecking their faith. In a shipwreck, something happens to get the ship off track. It might be a storm, but it could just be the direction of the boat heading off a couple of degrees over the course of a long journey. And before you know it, that boat is far off track and running into something that it is not supposed to run into. It can change the trajectory of the destination. So even the smallest, most insignificant sins over time can change the trajectory of our lives. Most people don't wake up in the morning and say, this is the day I've decided to ruin my life. That's normally not how it works. It's the daily sins that go unignored that over time build up and lead to major disaster. When I go to the doctor every year, I get blood work back. And I know my cholesterol and my blood sugar and my triglycerides. And I did not flunk that test if in fact I did flunk it because I had a cheeseburger and a milkshake just the night before. No, I would fail those tests if over the course of time, every time I eat, I'm having a milkshake and a cheeseburger. It's the buildup of habits over time. It's the ignoring of what the culture might not even consider to be a sin or what even the church might consider to be a small sin if left unaddressed. Over time leads to major problems. It leads to a heart that is sick. It could lead to what we will learn about later in the letter, a seared conscience. So Hymenaeus and Alexander, two men that Paul names here, at some point lost their way. Now more than likely they lost their way because of false teaching, which is the reason that Paul is writing this letter. But there are a number of reasons why people shipwreck their faith in today's world. Let me just give you a few. Number one, a misunderstanding of the gospel. Believing that the gospel is legalism or believing that the gospel is anti-law. Both of those extremes are dangerous. If one believes that the gospel is do this, this, and this, and you will make it to heaven, that's not a good way to think because that's not the gospel. But on the flip side, if somebody believes, well, I filled out a card and I'm just going to continue to live my life the way I've always lived it, that's not the gospel either. So a misunderstanding of the gospel, number one, is an easy way for someone to shipwreck their faith. Number two, poor discipleship. Someone who 
has never faithfully been taught the Bible. Poor teaching in the context of their church. Maybe they have no church at all. And instead they have turned to YouTube or podcasts or TV shows that might actually promote a false gospel. So poor discipleship. Number three, a lack of community. A person is far more likely to fall prey to false teaching if they're trying to navigate the Christian life in isolation. We need one another. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to help us get back in line if, in fact, we are falling prey to poor or bad teaching. And then number four, indifference. When one's faith isn't real, it's really not hard after a while to just stop making it a priority. Indifference. And then, of course, number five, the most obvious way to shipwreck your faith is just sin. Unrepentant, unconfessed sin, which we've already discussed. And we all know people who would fall into all five of these categories that I just named. Misunderstanding of the gospel, poor discipleship, lack of community, indifference, and sin. You probably all know people who have shipwrecked their faith over all of those categories. So what is our response to those people? It's very simple. We pray. We love them. We urge them to repent of their sin. We take them back to what the scriptures teach. We go back to the fundamentals with those people. We don't take them to some obscure passage and make an argument for some, you know, tertiary theological belief. We take them back to the gospel and make sure they understand what the gospel is and what it isn't. What is repentance? What is faith? What does it mean to walk in the image of Christ? Those basic things. And somewhere along the line... Unfortunately, we're not told, Hymenaeus and Alexander moved away from the Orthodox faith. And it could have been any one of these five things I mentioned or something else. But in the process, they lost the gospel. And when you lose the gospel, you are destined for shipwreck. Number three, do not forget the war is ultimately for your soul. It is after your soul. Look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 20. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now it's obvious at this point that Paul is not treating Hymenaeus and Alexander as Christians... Because they're not Christians. They have abandoned the gospel. And when you abandon the gospel, you abandon Christianity. You're not in Christ if you abandon the gospel. They exhibit no evidence of good fruit in their lives. They're living in unrepentant sin, whatever it might have been. But, but what if they... What if they prayed a prayer? What if they filled out a card? What if they walked an aisle? What if they were baptized? That's not what the Bible teaches about what saves a person. What saves a person is repentance of sin and faith in Christ alone. Baptism is a response to what God has done. Now, I filled out a card when I was converted to faith in Christ. 
But filling out that card is not what saved me. The Holy Spirit saved me through the work of regeneration in my heart, taking it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The biblical understanding of conversion must always go back to repentance and faith. It is two sides of the same coin. It is repenting of sins and trusting in the finished work of Christ to forgive me of my sin. So what is Paul doing with Hymenaeus and Alexander in this passage? He's actually performing what we would call church discipline. He is removing them from the body. And here's why. Because to allow them to remain a part of the congregation, living in unrepentant sin, actually makes the church less pure. So we use this definition all the time. The church is the gospel made visible to the community. Right? That's what the church is. It is the gospel made visible to the community. So if a lost world sees us as followers of Christ living in unrepentant sin and then they think that's all it means to be a part of the church just to show up on Sunday but but to continue to live my life the way I want to, it only enhances a false understanding of the gospel. It also enhances nominalism, which is this idea that we can believe certain intellectual beliefs about the gospel, but we don't actually practice what we believe. It's a casual understanding of faith. So it leads to false assurance for those within the church, but it can also lead to a misunderstanding of what it means to be converted for those outside the church. Sin, if left untreated within the body, not only harms the church, but it harms the witness of the church to the community. So if lost people see the church turning a blind eye to sin, then why would they view the church as a place where one can receive forgiveness of sin? This is why we we try to work really hard, especially on this Sunday when we gather to take the Lord's meal, to have times of corporate confession, to make sure that we have poured our hearts out before the Lord and pled for the blood of Jesus to wash us clean of our sins. And if our hearts are not in the right place, then we don't want to take of this meal. Somewhere along the line, I think we're afraid to have the plate passed to us and actually abstain from taking the Lord's Supper. But if your heart's not in the right place... There's no need to be embarrassed. There's no need to be ashamed. That's actually a sign of maturity. That you're taking what the scripture teaches about this meal seriously. There have been times in my own life when the cup and the uh, bread have passed over me. I have abstained from taking of that meal. Why? Because my heart wasn't in the right place. I didn't have the opportunity or maybe my heart was hardened and I didn't want to confess that sin in my life. It's not something to be embarrassed of. It's something to show spiritual maturity. That you're taking what the scriptures teach about this meal seriously. So what's the purpose then of what we see Paul doing here? Handing over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. What's the purpose of this case of church discipline? Is it shame? Is it embarrassment? Is it guilt? Nope. 
the text actually tells us. Look at what it says. That they may learn not to blaspheme. This is a teachable moment. He wants this experience to be a way for them to turn from their unbelief, turn from their sin, and come back to Christ. So the goal is always restoration. And we don't have time today to look over Matthew 18, but there are clear instructions that Jesus gives us about how we deal with these types of cases. First, we go to that brother or sister individually. And if they refuse to listen, we take it before a small group of people. And if they refuse to listen, then we take it before the whole body. So there are steps that Jesus gives us about how to address these issues. But remember, the goal is to urge that brother or sister to come back. To be restored into the right fellowship of Christ's church. So discipline is good for the body of Christ. It helps us take our sin seriously. It fights against nominalism. It shows us and the world that followers of Jesus take their sin seriously and that we want nothing more than to confess our sin and come before God in a right frame of heart and mind. It's good for both the soul and it's good for the local body. The Puritan John Owen says this in his book, Duties of Christian Fellowship. He says, here therefore is the duty of every church member towards those with whom he walks in fellowship. That by using God's word, he should admonish any member who he judges is, in some particular, not living according to the right way. And he is to do so with the one purpose of recovering that member's soul. So having these types of relationships is for the purpose of bringing us back to Christ when we start walking away from Him. It holds us accountable, and it helps restore us. May we be the type of church that welcomes these types of relationships. May you be the type of church members that come to me and approach me when you see me living in a way that is not pleasing to God. Christian relationships within the church are important Because the war is for our soul. Satan wants to destroy your soul. He wants us to be casual towards our sin. To not be transparent. To put on a happy face all the time to make people think everything is okay. That's what he wants you and me to do. He wants you to mask our lives. And the scary part is that we're really good at that. I'm really good at that. The scary part is churches can appear healthy on the outside and be very sick internally. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to the Pharisees when he's giving his woes to them in Matthew 23. Here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Our church 
churches around the country and around the world. They can be busting at the seams numerically. They can have great ministries, nice facilities, lots of money, and they can be dead on the inside. Because God doesn't judge the external. He judges the heart. So we want to have soft hearts. So brothers and sisters, let's fight the good fight of faith that Paul tells us about. Let's keep the gospel central. Let's confess our sin. Let's disciple one another. Let's evangelize the lost. If we do these things, we will be faithful to what God has called us to do. We might not ever bust at the seams numerically, but we will be faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. Even if that means that we dwindle in size to be as faithful and obedient to what God has for us then so be it. And that's not an easy thing, by the way, for pastors to say. Because every pastor wants a church full of people. So as we get ready here in just a moment to approach this table, let me urge you to confess your sins to God. Non-Christians, let me urge you, turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ. Let me remind you of what Paul says in verse 15 of this very chapter. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God stands ready to forgive you of your sin. Turn from it and place your faith in Christ. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we realize that we are in a battle. And this is serious, and it is personal. So may we wage war against the enemy through relying and abiding in your spirit, loving one another, and reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. As we approach this table this morning, may we come to this meal having reflected on our own hearts and our own sin, confessing it before you, knowing that you forgive us of your sins. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.